Episode 10, CubeSats. You're listening to SpexCast. Welcome to SpexCast, a podcast for discussing the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil, and joining me today we have TJ. Hello, everyone. Augie. Hi, everyone. And Drew. Hi. And today we're going to talk about CubeSats. But first, uh, we just want to plug a little event we're doing. We're doing a live recording of SpexCast at Imagine RIT on May 7th. Um, if you can't attend, we're taking questions for real astronomers from our audience. So send your emails, send an email to us at specscast at gmail.com or tweet your questions at RIT Specs. And we'll ask a real astronomer on the performance stage in front of a live audience, and it'll be pretty sweet. What is a real astronomer defined as? Someone who does research with telescopes. So, he okay. gets paid to do it. He gets Someone who gets to paid to perform astronomy. Yes. Uh, Professional guest, astronomers. Our guest is Kevin Cook. Um, he's been on a few other podcasts, and um, as a, like a science consultant for a local public radio station um, for science stuff really cool if you look them up. Uh, our, our live show topic will be telescopes and astronomy, and we'll talk a little bit about the history, past, present, future, and what RIT, uh, what RIT's role is in the astronomy scene. But let's get on with the show, talk about CubeSats. So first off, who wants to explain what a CubeSat is? I'll start. So <laughs> CubeSats are a uh, kind of pico satellite they are 10 by 10 by 11.25 centimeters oh really they're not 10 by 10 by 10 uh they are well they look exactly like cubes but the Nano mounting satellite. system gives them a little bit of extra oh, length wow. in one uh, dimension detail yes semantics um so these were invented at cal poly san luis obispo as a modular system for these kinds of nano satellites um before that uh, different groups some universities mostly governments would be building these small satellites as test platforms. Uh, probably the most famous is Sputnik, the original satellite, uh, about the size of a large beach ball. Uh, CubeSats are a lot smaller than that, uh, aided by the miniaturiz miniaturization of electronics. So you, now you can put all of the major subsystems of a satellite into this little box. And you basically can run one main experiment on these. And they're comparatively a lot cheaper than the usual satellites we launch. Comsats are hundreds of millions of dollars. Even the small sats are 50 to 100 pounds or millions of dollars. So you're looking at a price anywhere from 75 to $150,000 to build one of these. To build a CubeSat. Yes. And that's because the components that go into it, uh, there is a design standard and there are like, you can buy off the shelf satellite components to plug into your CubeSats and launch them up. And there's a standardized deployment mechanism, right? Yeah, that's so, called a, a P-Pod. So let's explain how a, a CubeSat gets from like, if I made a CubeSat and it was done, sure. how do I get it to space? Sure. So if you wanted to take your CubeSat to space, you would have to get it approved uh, typically by NASA or whatever launch provider that you were using. So like ULA or SpaceX, whatever rocket they had would approve your payload as a secondary payload. A lot of times they have, uh, you know, opportunities for universities to get the launch for free. Other times you could just pay your way in and get a get a spot on a rocket. And they're putting they're, so like a rocket has more capacity, has more weight that it could lift. Right. And instead of just taking the one thing that doesn't use all that mass, they chuck in right. all these extra little things to get 
the most into orbit with a single launch. Sure. Right? So, so if you have if your rocket is more capable than the mass that you're actually taking, there's space to add secondary payloads, and that essentially is is wasted mass. If they don't launch anything or put a mass simulator in there, um, they're not, you know they're not doing anything with it. So you might as well launch a small satellite like a CubeSat and help you know another organization out in testing. And, and launching satellites. Yeah. So uh, one of the standards is com- something called a P-Pod, which was developed by uh, Cal Poly. Um, and what that does is essentially they they have a basically a 3U size where you insert your, your CubeSat or say you make a 1U CubeSat, which- What do you mean by a, a U is the one 10 by yeah, 10 so whatever? Yeah, so one U is defined as a 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter cube. And that's basically if you do the volume calculation, that's a liter. So a 1U is a liter, a 3U would be a 3-liter cube, that'd be 10 by 10 by 30 centimeters. And if you have three of them, like a, th- a 3U yep. in the P-Pod, it's like three Ps in, in a, a pod. In That's a exactly why pod. they have that name, yep. And the acronym stands for something as well. Drew's smirking at me, but I make sure that pun is clear whenever the P-Pod is mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that that's a way for them to be ejected. So a lot of the times they'll be launched first to the ISS, and then the ISS will eject them into space, into orbit. And almost every CubeSat ends up in low Earth orbit or most of the CubeSat that have been launched before. So when they launch them from the ISS, aren't they worried about um, it coming back around and like potentially being a, th- a threat to to in- impact the, the space station itself? So with the P-Pod, they actually have a spring inside that'll give them, I think, one meter per second of delta V, uh, just a linear push through the P-Pod. And so when you're in orbit, a small change of delta V can give you several hundred meters of actual change um, from the ISS. Uh, so they do use P-Pods on a lot of rockets and the ISS. One of uh, the most humorous ways I've seen of launching CubeSats is that they'll bring them up with the CRS, uh, Commercial Resupply Service vehicles, Dragon and Cygnus. And then the astronauts will take these and literally kind of throw them out the airlock which uh, might not be the most high-tech method of deployment, but it works quite well. So I've heard that mentioned before, but it, I'm curious, is that just like before the Peapod was developed, they did that? Or is that like a certain specialized payload requires it? Do you know? So Peapods are really useful for bolting onto rockets, right? So rockets have a lot of extra space. You can throw one Peapod, a dozen Peapods on there, and right. you can fill up that extra capacity. Um, but when you're on the ISS, deployment is a little bit more difficult, right? So just jettisoning things out of the airlock is the easiest method of doing things. So you don't put a peapod in, in the airlock and shoot it out like a bazooka? They actually throw it like a baseball? I don't believe so. No, it wouldn't be a th- truck. I'm sure the astronauts try to be gentle with them. Uh, I mean, but it's it is, in orbit. Uh, it is Why a light toss. It's all you need, right? So let's talk about CubeSat subsystems. Okay, so to support a payload, yeah. Orbit, you so, need a bunch of different stuff that it relies on to live. Yeah, one of the big advantages of the CubeSat standard and platform is that it has all of the main subsystems that a real satellite would have. So when universities start building these, you actually get hands-on experience with every uh, subsystem that a real satellite would have, just on a much smaller scale and mostly less complicated. Um, so let's talk about the uh, ADCS, Attitude, Determination, and Control System. Right. So the attitude is the orientation in space of the cube, of the satellite or any satellite. 
And on larger crafts like the space shuttle they and the Dragon capsule, for example, they actually have thrusters that shoot out like mini, mm -hmm. mini rocket engines that change the orientation. Satellites, um, and especially cube satellites, have smaller things like um, reaction wheels, which mm -hmm. are spinning masses. And when you, when you have something spinning and you change how fast or slow it spins because of angular momentum, it actually induces a torque on the, um, on the body. So you can just change the speed of the spinning thing and look to the left. And some other ways you can change your orientation is through a magnet worker, which is basically an electromagnet that you have a couple of these facing different directions, opposing directions. And when you're floating around in space, you're within Earth's magnetic field. And if you turn on a magnet at a certain power, it'll interact with Earth's magnetic field. And since you're in zero G or microgravity, it'll just slowly bring around uh, your satellite. Mm -hmm. And people have developed uh, ways of actually taking like, if someone, if an astronaut threw a CubeSat out the airlock and it was tumbling, you could actually have, there's like a certain way to turn on these magnet torquers and bring it from a tumbling state down to a constant um, orientation. Yeah. And depending on what you're doing, like if you're doing imaging, for example, ADCS is really, really important. But if you're just using, um, you know, if you're doing something else like, like testing something in microgravity, right? And all you need to do is orient your antenna back to Earth. There are antennas that just like point up or down, and you point the downside toward Earth, and that's all you need. So you don't need a lot of precision always. Uh, it's really, really dependent on the mission. So that's ADCS um, in in a nutshell. Yeah. So that was the main control systems. Uh, also. The one of the big tasks with ADCS is determining your attitude. So on Earth, we have this nice thing called gravity and also the ground. So we can pretty much assume that the ground is pointing down with uh, respect to the acceleration from gravity. With spacecraft, they are still in the gravity field, but because they're in orbit, there is no down, down ground to orient uh, against. So you have to basically um, predefine a orientation that this is up, this is left, this is right. And then you need to determine where the satellite is on all three axes relative to this predetermined co uh, coordinate matrix. I can I can speak about this a little bit too. I, I think this is, ADCS is the coolest part of the CubeSat for me, if, yeah. if you don't mind. I can, there are two ways to do it. Um, you can add to this if you want, but there's one called the beta angle. Um, it sounds super cool, but it's actually just you, you know where the sun is. Uh, you have solar panels on your on your thing. And then the built into the solar panels is a is a way to detect, you know, how you're oriented relative to the sun. And so would that be based on just whatever solar panel is getting the most photons, collecting the most photons? I think so. I think it has to do with the voltage as well. Um, and there might be specific beta angle sensors embedded oh, in each so it's, set it's in more solar panel. it's even more specific than just you know oh we're we're obviously the sun is on this side of the cube because it's collecting the most photons of light you can actually detect probably at a degree or two how right. well it's I, oriented. I think um, most of it has to do with the efficiency of the solar panel mm -hmm. if you're directly like perpendicular to where the sun is flat on against the sun it'll be the most efficient uh, for your solar panel to generate power mm -hmm. but if you're off angle it'll be less efficient, you'll make less power. Yeah. And I think if you monitor that, you can tell. 
Um, another kind of more advanced way to track your position is having a star tracker. And that actually looks at stars in the sky. And um, the really advanced ones can pick out constellations or known groupings of stars and say, this is exactly where I am. Uh, but less um, advanced star trackers can just like say, okay, here's a star. Here's how I'm moving relative to where that star was a second ago. And that's how much I've changed. So. I, I geek out about this stuff, and you guys don't seem as excited no, as I am. It is, oh, it's really it's cool. awesome. Oh, uh, yeah. So with star trackers, it's very uh, basically like a digitalized sextant. So on yeah. Earth, we yeah. used uh, sextants to determine latitude on the surface of the Earth. And when you're in orbit, you can kind of consider yourself to be moving along a extended sphere of the Earth's surface. So looking at the same stars, you can use the same techniques. We've digitalized it and miniaturized it, but it works just like how ancient sailors determine their position, you know, 300 years ago. Yeah, if you're not familiar, a sextant is the thing. Um, you pointed at, say, the North Star or a star, and you're looking up at an angle, and then you have another thing that points to the horizon. And based on that angle and, you know, where you are relative to North or South or whatever, um, you can tell your latitude and longitude. Right? Beyond ADCS, some CubeSats even have their own form of propulsion. So a lot of times with chemical propulsion, it's very difficult to get on to a, as a secondary payload to certain rocket launches. So like if the US government is launching a billion dollar satellite, they're not necessarily gonna want your chemical propulsion, um, you know, small satellite, you know, putting their billion dollar project at risk. You mean um, because it's, it could explode? Right, yeah, because if you put you know some sort of pressurized chemical or something like that in there, they're worried it may damage the primary payload. But there are CubeSats that have launched chemical propulsion before. And uh, one of the more interesting forms of propulsion out there is uh, solar sails. So you may have seen this in the news, but um, Bill Nye's uh, head of an organization called the Planetary Society, and they launched last year a Kickstarter crowdfunded uh, CubeSat that had a giant solar sail that essentially deployed in low Earth orbit and it was able to collect light from the sun and actually use that uh, to, to move it out as a form of propulsion. So basically the, the photons, even though they have no mass, have a momentum and they can use that to propel their satellites. And this can be useful for long distance missions because the sun is a, something that has infinite energy essentially for for, yeah, know, for our purposes for our purposes yeah so you don't need to carry any of your 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 propellant um, with propellant you. you can just deploy this massive uh, thin filmed solar sail and collect all the light to propel you right and this even works on a small scale with CubeSats so planetary light sail from planetary society was only 3u so that's only 30 centimeters tall that's like a foot tall you know and it had basically a way thinner version of aluminum foil is what it looked like. Mm -hmm. It wasn't actually aluminum foil, but, um, and it kind of opened like an umbrella. Is that correct? Yep. And they had some difficulties, but still the, the proof of concept, it works. The solar sail works and they're working on launching another one. Awesome. So, yeah. Is there a subsystem in particular that you like the most, uh, Drew, or know, know a lot about and geek out about? Like well, with all, Tab all of the subsystems have their own unique interest. Right. And I think that um, certainly star trackers are awesome. Yeah. So your <laughs> your geeking out about it is warranted. Uh, as a mechanical engineering student, I my focus 
at least in specs in our in our research organization, is the structure side. Right. So it's a standardized form. There are mounting rails that we work around, but it's something that my focus is working with the materials and the geometries that we use to mount everything else that's for the science payload onto the CubeSat. And how do you how do you go about doing that? Do you use plastic? Do you use like thin aluminum with cutouts? The think- mounting rails are aluminum and yeah, yeah, um, for my knowledge fade. <laughs> so when you're on orbit, uh, roughly a 1U CubeSat with solar panels on all six sides has about 1.2 watts of useful power generation per orbit. And when you start per looking... Orbit. Yes, per orbit. And that's like every 45 every, minutes? Every 90 minutes. 90 minutes. Right? So you're spending half of that in darkness, half of that in the sun. And so you either have your constant power draw be under that for your operating system, all your avionics, and then, especially when you want to communicate or run power-intensive uh, payloads, then you need to have a full battery system and power management system to supply those uh, power requirements. So do you mean, um, like, to keep it running when you're not in front of the sun or to spend, like, 10 orbits gathering um, energy and charging your batteries so you can use it all at once? Uh, both. A little bit of both, right? So you want to have <clears throat> things like your attitude uh, determination system running all the time, right? You want to know exactly where you are and where you're going, where you're changing over time. Right. Uh, you want your all your avionics in like your low power kind of standby state to be running all the time. So those are your baseline power draws. And then when you want to broadcast over radio, that should take a large uh, amount of power for that. And then if you have a payload that needs a lot of power, that's going to need a lot of power for that. So you need to balance your your baseline draws every orbit and then also be able to save up enough power to be able to broadcast information down and run those experiments. Right. And this is one of the barriers why uh, a lot of CubeSats have really stuck to low Earth orbit um, is because as you get farther away from the sun, you um, the energy density of light from the sun uh, gets lower. So like... Um, it's the, relatively negligible in Earth orbit. Go, uh, it, in Earth orbit, it's negligible, but if you like wanted to go past Mars, yeah, sure. If you want to go far, but deep space cube. No, I don't think we've had deep space cube because that's where a lot of our rockets are going. Yeah. So like we launch um, satellites, you know dozens and dozens of them every year and so a secondary payload that goes with it is just going to end up where that satellite is going right so it's not going any further just to launch that small cubes and we we haven't been sending rockets up specifically for cubesats they've only been secondary payloads is that correct yes that's changing uh sherpa is a payload for um spacex in the coming months where that's a large number of cubesats and also small sats where I think almost 80 different groups are on this uh, carrier. So they developed a uh, bus that stores all these CubeSats uh, through P-Pods or special adapters. And then that organization directly deals with the launch provider. And so that's when you spread the cost of a $60, $80 million launch among 80 people or 80 entities, then it starts to become affordable. So what's a small set? Is that like the next, the big brother of a CubeSat? What is a small set? Uh, usually, uh, CubeSats or satellites from 100 to 10 kilograms. Oh, it's just a classification? Yes. But the CubeSat's like 
the specific. So CubeSats are a standard. Uh, I believe they're kind of PicoSat. They're under 10 kilograms. And then sm small sats are uh, anywhere from 10 to 100 kilograms. I believe. Are you going to correct them and say they're nanosats and not picosats? No, fix my prefixes. <laughs> so a lot of different sites use different uh, different prefixes, so it's it's not really a big deal. But it's typically nanosats are the one to ten kilogram range, and they have smaller satellites like picosatellites. Yes. And there are universities out there. Um, there's there's a new one just in the news. I can't think of the name off the top of my head right now. That's that's coming up with a super super tiny um, satellite, kind of like what Steve, what we talked about in the last episode that Stephen Hawking wants to send all the way to uh, Alpha yeah. Centauri, like even smaller than a CubeSat, um, and that's more like the PicoSat 0.1 to one kilogram range. Right. So for the next subsystem that's really 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 important for CubeSats, you want to talk about avionics a little bit? Sure, we can talk about avionics. So. Avionics is very important because that is the logic that runs all of the commands of the satellite. It's the so, motherboard, right? Yeah, it's the motherboard, the main processor, the brain, and the yeah. data bus that connects all the different subsystems together. So we talked about ADCS and how important it is to determine where you're pointing. So there is the specific hardware dedicated to that. So the star trackers, all um, whatever you're using to change your orientation. But all of the logic that runs through that has to run on the avionics equipment. And so we talked about detumbling, how that's very important. When you deploy from a P-Pod, usually you're going to be in a tumble. And you need to be able to stop that tumbling motion, be stable, deploy your antennas, and start communicating with the ground. Right. All of that uh, code, which is very complicated code, very complicated algorithms to do that efficiently, uh, has to run on the avionics board. And that it has to be done. It's not remote control because... That all has to be removed, for, especially for that, because you're not going to be able to communicate. Right. When, it, when it's jettisoned from the Peapod, it's not like we're talking to it the whole way through. It's it's on its own and it says, okay, I'm on. I've got to detumble now mm -hmm. and do that all by itself. And it, it So that's pre-programmed into the avionics Yeah, so like you'll have package. that. Yeah, that's it's running off the avionics main board uh, and using all your ADCS sensors and uh, impulse methods. So is there only one board? I don't know what to call it. What do you, what do you call it? It's, I would PCB. say it's called the main board. So there are lots of different PCBs. Uh, most of the components in the CubeSat are going to be microelectronics mounted to PCBs. Um, but PCB there's usually being a, the circuit boards. What does the P stand for? Printed, printed. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so if you look at the internal structure of a CubeSat, right? It, it's on the outside. It's a big cube. Uh, inside, it's actually a bunch of PCBs stacked on top of each other, and usually they'll have one main data bus going up a side. So you have all these different layers mounted to the the internal rails. It's kind of like if I have my motherboard in my tower and my a bunch of graphics cards like stacked up, plugged into it on the side. I'll, so not exactly. So a motherboard, if people are familiar with building computers, you have a large flat PCB, and yeah. then you have vertical PCBs sticking out. Yeah, that's for that's for a regular desktop computer. For this, all the PCBs are stacked directly on top of each other. They're all 10 by 10 squares stacked on Physically top of each other. Physically connected to each other. And you'll have one main bus that runs up either one side or both sides. Okay. And so that's how each board communicates to every other board is through that oh, bus on okay. the side. Right? Because you can't have... So they're just pins that connect... Like when you stack them on top of each other, it's just like a row of pins on one side? Yeah, exactly. And if you okay. need more connections, you can do on two sides. I haven't seen any designs that use three or more uh, for data connections, but that's usually how it goes. Okay. Um, 
And so when you're looking at 1.2 watts of power per orbit, that means that if you want to have useful power for transmitting radio and running your payload and things like that, your constant power draw that your avionics runs on has to be a lot lower. Uh, I can look up the actual numbers that we calculated for our satellite, but you're looking at microcontrollers. You're, you're not going to be running, you know, advanced yeah. like x86 processors. You're, you're looking at uh, microcontrollers and you really can't do multiple. So like those. something that would be in a lower end cell phone? So there have been CubeSats that used a uh, phone. They're called phone sats that use ARM processors. Uh, but but even lower than that? Oh, um, we're looking at is even generally speaking. Uh, so, we're looking at microcontrollers. So yeah, so the phone industry has just taken off with the iPhone and everything like that. And uh, so NASA started the pro the project, the PhoneSat project, which was essentially uh, in 2009 they launched a Nexus One, and they used uh, you know they had lithium batteries there, but they used basically all the components that were already built into the Nexus One smartphone, and the whole thing to build only cost thirty five hundred dollars to construct an entire CubeSat, which you know, is insanely cheap for a CubeSat. And they've just kind of been expanding on that. There's been, I think, three now that have launched. Um, they'll throw in like an S-band radio to help with the avionics, but it's essentially just launching a cell phone, taking advantage of, you know, the, the GPS uh, receiver and transmitter that's already in the cell phone, um, you know, the processor, because um, kind of the advancements that companies like Apple and Samsung have made in these small microprocessors have really just enabled a whole new um, you know, possibilities for, for CubeSats. But generally speaking, do those require too much power? Like TJ, you said that usually we don't use something. Um, we use something. We even use an 86-bit like for your computer, but some of these newer like smartphones, your smartphone does not drain that much power. It's, I mean, it's crucial for them because, you know, as they get thinner and thinner to use less energy. Right. So if you look at your smartphone, that has a 12-hour battery life roughly and, and it's it can fit in your hand, so it's small enough to fit into CubeSat, you know what I mean? Right. So, um, when TJ, you were talking about a different thing other than, than ARM processors, which are like mostly Android and, and iPhone um, processors. What you, you said there was a distinction. I'm curious, what, what is the distinction between what you were talking about and what Augie's talking about? So, uh, I was talking about microcontrollers. Yeah, so what's, what's the difference between a microcontroller and... Something They're like less uh, complete processors. So the instruction set you can run on a microprocessor versus an ARM processor or an x86 uh, chip is different and more limited. So it's like the microcontroller doesn't have an operating system where a microprocessor would have an operating system? No, you, so you'd still run an operating system and CubeSats run real-time operating systems, which are a little different style than what's, you know, Windows. Um, but they're limited uh, instruction sets, so they're less versatile. Okay. Is that a problem with CubeSats? No. So um, <laughs> you do do a lot of different things. Do you, you do? <laughs> you do do. You do do. Um, I'm trying to look up the actual uh, power requirements we had for our uh, first CubeSat design. Um, but, I mean, you, you CubeSats are designed for, it's like a one-track mind. You're, you go there to do one thing. So... Yes, you have to detumble. Yes, you have to manage all these things, but... Yes, but I'm almost with what Drew, I think, is leaning at, and I kind of think it is maybe not a problem, but it's something that could be changed because we've gotten to the point where we can develop such small processors 
like your iPhone costs less than $650. So if you take the, the processor out of that, um, and it is capable of doing many different things, because it is so cheap, it doesn't matter. As long as you can program something or come up with some sort of standard that utilizes the same platforms that your phone does, um, then you take advantage of the rest of the industry and capitalism commercialization um, driving the cost down. So, so that I think may be the next leap that CubeSats need to take to go from the current you know, $100,000 range to maybe drop it down to $10,000. And, and they may even be even more capable. It's it's just you still have to worry about transmitting data. So so I was when about you to bring that up, that's yeah. Like, so you don't want to transmit any excessive data. So your processor, if it's capable of running more processes in space, that should be fine. But when you transmit that back to Earth, um, there's not you know great communication systems set up for that. So can we talk to... a little bit about the communications? That's the next subsystem I wanted to talk about. So CubeSat can do all this crazy stuff in space. Uh, but then to talk to Earth or to receive commands from Earth, they usually use radio radio bands, right? You have to get approval from the U.S. government and whatever. Make sure you're not accidentally <laughs> using military frequency. Is that is that how it works? TJ, have you done this before? Yeah, so uh, we actually, in our Astrodynamics Special Topics course, went into a lot of the, the communications and how radio communications work on a theoretical level and on a practical level for a CubeSat. So one of the big issues is that it's power, right? So um, the you from the ground, you can basically have unlimited power for transmitting, and you can build large antennas for receiving. Large antennas being for weaker signals? Yes. So uh, basically... You have a signal-to-noise ratio, and you need your the incoming signal is for tra uh, receiving data from the satellite is based on the power that you send to the antenna. Also, antenna design can also increase what's called the gain of the uh, the transmitter, and on the ground, the size and design of the antenna can increase the gain of the receiving antenna. And so, what you want to do is that uh, with limited power you need to send useful data back and you need to have a signal to noise ratio where you can encode digitally ones and zeros. And then that basically determines your bandwidth. So yeah, when, when you're planning comms, you also have to consider like being smart about which data you send because you have a very limited budget, how often you send data and which bands of the radio frequencies you use. Yeah, so it's more of a fact of... Um, Power and distance. Is, so, are certain frequencies more efficient? Yes. It's a very tentative yes. There's lots and lots of different factors that go into this. Okay. Um, basically, like antenna size increases. Um, I could oh question I could bust Speak out the notes That's and fine. like go over it, but I really can't do this. Speaking of antennas, we're talking about a really small satellite. How do usually how would CubeSats um, manage the antennas? Like, do you just have a telescoping one? Or Most use actually measuring tape. So they have an omnidirectional antenna that's just built with measuring tape that just will extend out. So since measuring tape is metal, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a straight line. And if you've ever played with measuring tape before and you kind of like feed it out, you can tell that it stays straight or it likes to stay straight. Mm -hmm. You can just shoot out or um, 
you what do you what do they do? Think pre bend, preload the measuring tape, and then release it. On a spring, I think they so, take yeah. actual measuring tapes and put them in. Right, and you just and then you just it. run power to the measuring tape. Right. So since like if you like, it's really like scary how simple it is. I mean, you could probably do this on Earth if you um, oh, took without like, a doubt. CB radio or something and just had a really long measuring tape. There you go. That's an antenna. Yeah. So your antenna needs to be a um, conductive material. And so a metallic measuring tape of the right length and weight, you want to uh, make sure it's, it doesn't have to be very long so you can save mass on there. And so uh, usually you can put four, I think. You put you usually put one in each corner and you'll have four omnidirectional antennas. Right, so that means no matter what orientation CubeSat is in, it will always be transmitting data. It, some of the data will get to Earth. Um, doesn't matter which antenna it goes out from. Do you think it would be more expensive power-wise to reorient the craft toward Earth and then transmit with only one antenna rather than carrying four or transmitting through four at once? Is there a difference in the, in the power margins there? I wonder. You might not be able to answer this. I just no. I have no no evidence of this, but <laughs> I I think that the reason that the the standard is to use four is because no, it it's not cheaper in terms of power to reorient yourself to transmit and then transmit. If we can transmit and be tumbling then that saves us the power to orient ourselves, which can be, in, if we're using magnet torquers, involves using power to right. It's cheaper to with, send out of four antennas than it is to try to reorient yourself. Potentially. It's more of a and cost... thing, too. Redundancy. Yeah, it's more of a cost-benefit analysis where, and a risk assessment, um, where if you can't communicate to and from the satellite, that's mission... The, yeah, the mission's it's a dead over, satellite. right? And so, while it might not be as efficient to have the, those antennas, um, it's more important to know that when you send a, a communication, a command to your satellite, that is going to receive it and attempt to fill it out. And so, that's really something you have to balance because you know you can um, make each subsystem as efficient as possible, but you might introduce more risk and uh, actually harm the overall mission. Right. And speaking of dead satellites, uh, one thing I wanted to mention is that when uh, a university or a company or whatever makes a satellite and asks NASA to launch it for them, there's a requirement that it deorbits after 25 years or something, right? Actually, they prefer it to deorbit within 10 years. And, and you can get, actually, they really want it to deorbit as soon as possible. No matter what, whether. Space jump. But if you have a mission that for some reason needs to be up there for, for a long period of time, then you can get around that. But most of the time, nobody's developing a CubeSat that's designed to last 10 years right, and, so and transmit. Even if the satellite dies, it's like kind of built into the mission plan to deorbit without right. additional input, right? And that's to cut down on space debris, like right. if anyone's seen gravity. Let's hope that wasn't a CubeSat. I haven't seen the movie myself, but... <laughs> yeah, so so essentially it will just deorbit, and a lot of times CubeSats will deploy whatever they already have to increase their surface area, so they pick up more atmospheric drag, and it's atmospheric drag that actually brings them down over time. So a lot of bigger satellites, more expensive, more important satellites, like for example the ISS, 
actually have thrusters that will keep it at the altitude that prevent it from falling back and deorbiting. So you have to keep refueling that. Even when you're way up there, there's still a thin amount of atmosphere. Yep. And then over years and years, it's like drag you on Earth, but just like dialed down way back. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, atmospheric drag for low Earth orbit satellites is definitely a consideration uh, with the ISS at roughly um, 300 kilometers, I believe. Uh, they have to do reboots because they have lots and lots of surface area, which is one of the main components for uh, orbital drag. Um, and they do have relatively high mass for most of that, which lets them stay up a while. Now, with a CubeSat, uh, you know, you're not in a very aerodynamic shape and you don't have a lot of momentum stored in there. And so you're going to deorbit relatively quickly. Right. And when it, after, you know, it's, there's a lot of drag on it, pulling and pulling and pulling years at a time, it gets to a point where it can't orbit anymore, falls through the denser parts of the atmosphere super fast because it's orbital speeds and uh, burns, burns up like a, like a meteorite. Now that's for satellites in general. But for CubeSats, I believe they deorbit in a few months. Most, so like a lot of CubeSats will deorbit in under a year. Other times they stay, some are still up there that launched 10 years ago. So it all depends on at what um, point you release the CubeSat. And is that, is that defined by the mission plans or is that defined just like all variations? It's defined by the mission plans, yeah. So you know what orbit you're, you're going to be released at. But sometimes, you know, rockets have a window where they want to release their payload. Right. And they might release it at a higher payload or a higher orbit or a lower one. And based on that, your CubeSat could be up there for an extra two years, just depending on, you know, a few extra meters, essentially. And if it doesn't matter for your mission, then, then you don't really care. Right. Uh, but if you have something, like you said, where you wanted to be up there for 10 years, you obviously wouldn't go on that mission. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> with CubeSats... Um, Usually, the most of the experiments are within six months to a year is their life lifetime. And that's does that include like how long does it take to begin an experiment after you launch out um, of the peepod? So with uh, NASA's restrictions, uh, you think you have to do thirty minutes before you can boot up, and then depending on what your m payload plan uh, mission plan is. So the soonest you can start is thirty minutes after it's launched deployed. out of the peepod. Yeah. Um, but it just depends on like what your experiment is. If you're you know collecting data for a couple months, then you need to be up there for three to three to six months. But if you're just doing a deployment test, then you know you deploy, you get enough power from your solar panels, everything's ready, you communicate, and then you deploy and success fill it right there. Um, but yeah, they're really not going to last, you know, a year, five years, ten years. Uh, satellite providers have a really hard time designing equipment for communication satellites the last 10, 15 years because they're kind of in a race where it's so expensive to put a satellite up that you want it to last as long as possible. And then in order to make it as long as possible, it has to be more and more expensive. And so the whole idea with CubeSats is to be cheap, one-off experiments. They're not supposed to be, you know, long-term data gathering resources because it's cheaper to build another one. So, right. like, if you need, you know, constant data set for two years, you can launch four CubeSats for $400,000 instead of designing a small sat, which might be $2 million that will last five years. And all the data is transmitted in orbit, so we don't care that it burns up in the atmosphere after a few months anyways. We're not trying to recover it. Right. This is a very good point because one of the 
uh, payloads that we're pursuing in specs is radiation memory testing. Now this could be done on Earth. There are radiation test chambers, uh, a very few radiation test chambers throughout the country and throughout the world, but it's cheaper because there are so many people who need time on these chambers and the cost with getting time on this chamber that it's cheaper for us to put our various forms of memory Computer on a set like RAM. and send it mm -hmm. up. It's not like matching card games, testing mm -hmm. my memory. No, memory yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, one of <laughs> our payloads uh, that kind of ties into avionics is that, you know, you have your processors, but you also need to store uh, your operating system and whatever data you have on orbit. And with in low Earth orbit, you're in a very high radiation environment, so you're getting cosmic rays, alpha, beta, gamma particles, whole gamut. Um, and with silicon uh, chips, the micro uh, micro components that we use, uh, they don't like to be bombarded by radiation, turns out. <laughs> and so you have to use unique materials. Uh, germanium chips are really common uh, and design things to be radiation tolerant to actually be able to use all this great, you know, microelectronic technology that we use every day. Um, so one of our missions is to test physically different memory cells in space. So basically having one main board with four, you know, identically sized chips um, by die size and memory size, and then writing the same um, information to each and then waiting a amount of time for radiation to interact with the chips and then reading back from that. And you can actually see uh, with that relatively simple experiment which uh, kinds of memory are most resistant and least resistant, And actually quantify that performance. Yeah, and so like you, we, can, we can introduce radiation on the ground of all the different types, but at the end of the day, these chips on a larger satellite need to operate in space. And so being able to test just that one component in space and get the exact same radiation profile and intensities, uh, we can validate that. And so someone else who's launching, you know, their million-dollar satellite or $10 million satellite can be somewhat confident that they know how these chips are going to work. Cool. And you'll have a demonstration of some sort of this and like a poster of uh, your mission plan and everything at Imagine RIT for those of us who are in Rochester on May 7th. Um, that's all I've got for this episode. Anything to add, Drew? Well, we could talk about the other, what else Specs is doing in terms of CubeSats. Sure. So we, we're looking to participate in one of the launch initiatives. I'm not sure which. The CubeSat launch initiative held by NASA with uh, a due date in the third week of November crunch time already <laughs> yes so we're pursuing two primary cubesats the one that we already discussed the radiation memory testing and the other one is a electrodynamic tether where we use a and essentially a long measuring tape so a long antenna to interact we send current through this and we interact with the earth's magnetic field to gain energy for use in the CubeSat by deorbiting. So we we essentially convert our kinetic energy into potential electric energy. 
So basically, you have a conductive wire moving through an electric uh, magnetic field. And that's going to induce a current in the wire. And then you can uh, basically harvest electricity through that. And so that does create a magnetic force uh, on the wire that's going to slow you down. So you're going to lose kinetic energy. You're going to lose total orbital energy. So over time, you're going to lose height and speed. Um, But that is one way of generating power for low Earth orbit. Uh, satellites. Yeah, it's an alternative to, if for short burst energies, uh, an alternative to solar or um, I would guess chemical. Yeah, chemical, but I don't think we can send preloaded chemical up, can we? I don't know, like batteries. Fuel cells are big and heavy. Don't use fuel cells in a CubeSat. Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, you don't want to have any danger to your primary satellite when you fly these things. But we also have a third payload, um, which is affiliated with SPECS, that my senior design group has been working on, and that essentially looks at how proteins fold in space. And what, what it does is it uses a UV LED and measures the fluorescence of certain proteins after we mix them with reagents. Um, so we're going to have a, a breadboard prototype for that with our whole assay set up at Magnar IT. Cool. All right, that wraps up our discussion about CubeSats and all the fun stuff that they do. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another discussion on space exploration, science, and technology in about a week. And if you would like to share your thoughts on this topic, or if you have a request for another one, send your requests to specscast at gmail.com or tweet to us at RITSpecs. And also, don't forget to send in your questions for us uh, to ask real-life astronomers um, anything you might be wondering or, you know, something fun. This podcast has been made possible by RIT Specs, a space exploration student faculty research organization at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Special thanks to the Interactive Learning Grant Program for giving us the tools to promote student and faculty engagement outside the classroom. Our music is by Kevin Hartnell. This has been SpexCast. We'll see you next week.